we are in, as I said, John chapter 13. What a beloved chapter uh, this is. And, and really, <clears throat> this first part of the chapter is such a beautiful scene that we see unfolding here. Now, what's interesting, and again, I want you guys to really kind of be present with the context and the time frame that we're looking at. Because here as we hit John 13 now, we're within a 24-hour span of Jesus going to the cross. Again, you've heard me talk about it. Even though we're just kind of, you know, midway in the book of John, we've got a lot of chapters still to do. We're right at that point where Jesus is preparing to go to the cross in just a few hours, all right? He's been doing his public ministry, but what we see now happening is Jesus taking time to really minister and pour into his disciples, all right? For these next few chapters, chapters 13 and 17, it's what's known as this upper room discourse where Jesus is seeking to exhort and encourage his disciples. And it's beautiful things that we hear from the heart of Jesus that we don't really get in the other gospels as far as this this content exactly. But before Jesus begins to, you know, exhort his disciples with great words of encouragement, we see a wonderful example from Jesus here in chapter 13. And I know you guys are, I'm sure, familiar with what we're going to be seeing here, but we're going to be looking at a beautiful thing happening. We're going to be seeing here as we break down these first 17 verses, this idea of humility. Chapters chapter 13, 1 to 5, holiness, verses 6 to 11, and then happiness. We're going to be looking at this walk of humility, all right, this place of holiness in our lives, but the result of that being this happiness that comes forth. That's what we're going to be looking at here this morning. Look at verse 1 with me, and it says this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So we're reminded again that the feast of Passover is at hand here, all right? It's on the eve of the Passover that people are beginning to gather together. And the feast of Passover is where everything that Jesus has been doing is really leading towards. Because this is the moment now that Jesus is going to enter in as this final Passover lamb of sorts. This, this one that's going to finally do this work that, that a thousand sacrifices could never do. In removing our sin, Jesus is going to come and die on a cross and be... That sacrifice that is going to not just cleanse us and cover us as the other sacrifices did, but it's going to remove that sin from us. This is what everything Jesus has been doing is all leading towards and pointing to when he would come to this Passover feast now and do this work that would remove and replace that whole need for the sacrificial system, the thing that all the Jews have been doing all the way back to their history from their exodus out of Egypt. Jesus was going to come and do that work, replace that work, be the final work in that final sacrifice for us. That's why John, as he's writing the gospel, would oftentimes say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John knew early on that Jesus was somebody special. Not just a man, more than just a good teacher or a prophet. He was the Son of God able to take away the sins of the world. So we're at the eve of this Passover and it says there in verse one that Jesus knew that his hour had come. He knew that his hour had come. 
See, all through John's gospel, we've been seeing this theme developing, haven't we? Where it's been centralizing kind of around this hour. This hour. Remember, we saw in chapter 2, verse 4, mine hour has not yet come. Verse 30, his hour has not yet come. Verse 20 in chapter 8, his hour has not yet come. Chapter 12, Cole went over this. A couple weeks ago, verse 23, the the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And here now we see that Jesus knew that his hour was come. And then in chapter 17, we'll hear Jesus repeat it again. Father, the hour has come. Jesus, you see, knew and was walking in this divine timing of God. So what is this hour that Jesus was preparing for that he's recognizing and knowing that his hour has come? It's that time that Jesus would be crucified, where he would be that sacrifice to bring the forgiveness of sin, but also the removal of sin for us and from us, and that we might be now able to enter into a right relationship with God. That's the hour that Jesus was all living for, preparing for, that everything was revolving around. That's why nothing could happen to Jesus. Whenever the crowds came around, whether it was the religious leaders that can stone him, what would happen? Suddenly, boom, he's gone. Because it wasn't the hour. Jesus was in complete control of all things. Now understand this hour was an hour of great suffering. It wasn't a pleasant thing, but yet it would result in Jesus being fully glorified as he would rise again three days later, defeating sin and death. So it was an hour of great suffering, but it was an hour that would result in the greatest or the fullness of glory for Jesus. And I love that Jesus had just complete knowledge of this hour, this time that he would fulfill what he came to do. And I take great comfort in that understanding. And I hope you do too, because here's the deal. He knows your hour too. Not the hour that you're going to die. We're not getting morbid here. Although he does know that. Don't get me wrong here. But he knows what you're going through right now. He knows the hour that you're in right now. Whether that's an hour of rejoicing or whether that's an hour of grieving or difficulty or worry. Jesus knows the hour. He's in full control as he was in his life. He's in full control in your life. And he knows the hour. He knows what you're going through. See, you might be in an hour right now of great adversity or difficulty and hardship. But Jesus is in full knowledge of what you're facing and dealing with. And he cares. And he wants to come alongside you. That's why, why Peter would say in 1 Peter 5, 7, Casting all your care upon him. For he cares for you. That's the savior that we serve. Take comfort in that, my friends. Take comfort in the fact that Jesus knows what you're going through in this very hour. And he's there with you and for you to lead you through. Now, it says something interesting in that first verse. Notice that it says, having loved his own. Having loved his own. Now, that sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? Because we think, well, wait a second. Don't you love everybody, Jesus? Now we're, now we're kind of, you know, secluding that a bit and, and, and breaking that down to just your own. What? Well, hold on. Okay, don't get worried about this. Am I one of the own? Am I one of his? Am I one of those that he loves? And, and there's not many people that go through life really worrying over the fact that, does God love me? Can God love me? Yes, he does. John 3.16 makes that very clear that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The world means everybody. So yes, he loves you. But understand something here, that there's a... a 
a special kind of love that's reserved for those that are his. It's experienced and enjoyed by those that are in Jesus. You see, I can rightfully say that I love you all. And I do. I hope you know that. I love you guys. But, but I also love my wife and I love my children. And, and the love that I have for my wife and my children is going to carry a little bit more weight than it does for the love that I have for you. And I think you'd be okay with that, wouldn't you? You think that that should be, yeah, that should be the case. If you're loving me the way you love, no, that's not good, no. We don't, we don't want that. No, it's, it's going to have a little bit of a different weight. So too with Jesus, he loved his own. There's, a, there's a, a different kind of relationship that we as believers get to enter into and experience this love of God that's different than those that are not in Jesus and walking in fellowship and relationship with him. And notice this, not only is this a special love, but it's an enduring love. It's an everlasting love because it says that he loved them to what? To what? The end. He loved them to the end. So not only do we enjoy a special love with our, with our creator, our savior, but we get to have now and, and, and enjoy a lasting love. Jesus loved them to the end. But to what end? To what end did Jesus love them? To the end of Jesus' life on earth? To the end of their life on earth? Or is it to the consummation of the end of time as we enter into eternity? Which one is it? Whatever it might be, and I think they can all apply, right? The point is that Jesus didn't give up on them. That Jesus loved them to the end. Now think about that. Because he's been living three years with these disciples that have been arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Time and time again. Never really fully understanding and computing the things that Jesus is saying or doing. Not understanding these things. Oftentimes acting more in the flesh than they are in the spirit. Any step of the way, I think Jesus would have been okay to say, you know what guys, I'm done with you. Three years and you're still not getting, I'm done. I'm moving on now. But he loved them to the end. That love didn't give up on them. That love didn't stop. It didn't wane. He loved them to the end. And I'm so glad for that. Jesus doesn't give up on you. Doesn't give up on me. He loves us to the end. And he knows what the end result is going to be. And that's why he keeps working on us. That's why it says in Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Romans 8 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? The answer is an obvious no. Nothing. Nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. That also means that you, in your foolishness and idiosyncrasies, will not separate you from the love of Christ. Because he loves you to the end. And I'm glad for that. That brings great hope to me. And Jesus now is going to show the extent of his love in the following verses. Look at verse 2. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus knowing that the father 
had given all things in his hands and that he'd come from God and was going to God. So, let me stop right there. Once again, now we're introduced to the villain in the whole gospel story. Judas, right? Now understand something here. Judas was not just a pawn in the whole scheme of God. It wasn't that Judas didn't have a choice in the matter that God's just sitting back going, well, I need to have somebody that's going to be the bad guy. And Judas is scary, man. That just sounds like a villain. So let's just make him the guy, right? He's going to be the guy that's going to kind of come against Jesus and betray him. Let's make him the guy. It's not that Judas didn't have a choice in the matter. Judas had every, every opportunity to be one of the faithful disciples here. Notice what we see here. That the devil, verse 2, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot. See, Judas had a choice in all this. He was being tempted by the devil, just like you and me are, but he allowed that temptation to begin to take root and to act on it. Temptation is not sin. But when we allow temptation to begin to take root and and for us to begin to act on it, then that's when it becomes sin. And Judas began to do that. And that was something Judas allowed long before this. Remember we discovered in John 12 verse 6 that Judas was the keeper of the money bag and he would oftentimes go out to the mall and start spending it on himself, right? So he's already compromised his character. He's already been a man that's allowed the temptation of uh, of Satan to come into his life and to begin to act on it. He's a thief, it tells us in John 12. He was a thief and he took what was in the money bag. So Judas is a man that's compromised his character, that's been, a led, that's been led astray by the devil. But it didn't have to be that way, that way. See, Judas had every opportunity to, again, guard his heart and his mind from temptations, as we're called to do. Listen, just because you're being tempted doesn't mean that, oh, I must be some wretched, evil person. No, it makes you human. And if you're human here today, you're going to face temptation. But it's what we do with that temptation that matters. And God's given us equipment, armor, to stand against that. It tells us in Ephesians 6, 11, to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The wiles of the devil. Just think of Wild E. Coyote in the Roadrunner cartoon. How many remember that, right? It's always scheming, always like, how can I trap this roadrunner? That's what the devil's doing. But we don't have to fall prey to those things because we have the armor of God. Ephesians 6 continues on to enumerate what those are. But we're also told, as Paul tells us in in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So Satan's going to be right there putting into our heart, putting into our mind things to do that are opposing Christ. But we need to take those thoughts captive and go, wait a second, is this, is this of the Lord? Is this, is this contrary to God's word? Because if it is, I need to guard my mind and my heart against it and not allow that to dictate what I'm going to do. But Judas didn't allow that to happen. Not because he didn't have a choice, but because he made the wrong choice. And he becomes now the villain in the whole gospel story. But even though there's a villain in the story... Jesus knew that all things were still in his control. 
And nothing would happen apart from God allowing it to happen. See, Jesus didn't lose any sleep over this. He knew all along who Judas was and what he'd do. This didn't take Jesus by surprise. But notice what we read there. Verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going to God. Jesus didn't lose any sleep over this because he knew where he came from and where he's going. That's the reality for all of us, isn't it? We know where we came from and where we're going. That should radically change how we live our lives. See, we've come from God, meaning that our lives have purpose and meaning now because we've come from God, we're for God, but we're also going to God. So our lives have meaning today because we're for God, we're from God, but we also know that all things that happen today are temporary. Because we know this isn't the end. We're going to God. So whatever we might face, we have to take it with a grain of salt and realize this is temporary. I've got far better days coming my way. Isn't that usually the way that we're able to cope with things when we realize there's hope, there's something better coming? You might have vacation coming up, or maybe you've already taken vacation this summer. But you know when vacation is coming. Whatever might be going on that week at work, And it might be stressful. You're also going, ah, just one more week. And I get to go and do whatever that is. Camping, sitting on a beach, just not be at work. That's going to be great. And you're you're suddenly going, I can do this. One more week and vacation's coming. Well, that's the way it should be for us as believers. I can do this. Because I know where I came from, but where I'm going. There's hope. And this is not the end. This is just temporary. And in light of eternity, you know, all this stuff that we we put so much weight in and and allow to just stress us out, in the light of eternity, this is just a little blip. Just a little blip. We're going to be sitting in eternity looking back on those days going, why did I worry so much about this stuff? It's like just a little dot on that whole scope of eternity. We have hope, you see. Greater days await us. Praise the Lord for that. Now, Check this out. We've seen Jesus coming to the hour. He knows what this is all about. He knows who he is. He knows he's, where he's come from and where he's going. And he knows that he's been given all power. All power. And now he comes and he puts that power on display. How? By serving. All power given to Jesus. And now he comes with that power and he serves. Takes the place of a servant. Look at this, verse 4. He rose from supper and laid aside his garments. He took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Here is Jesus now showing the extent of his love And this path of humility. Amazing. After supper, he took his outer garments off. He put a towel around him and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now that's incredible. It's a little odd for us today. But in this day, it was a very common practice. Not so common for a person of Jesus' stature to be doing this. You see, in this day of open dirt roads... Open-toed sandals. 
right? You're traveling from house to house, from place to place. And guess what? Your feet are going to get gross very quickly. They're going to get dirty, dusty. It's just going to be bad news. So when you come into a home, if you're the guest of a home, it was the place of the lowest servant or the lowest slave to be the one that would wash the feet. Wash the feet of the the family whose house it was and to wash the feet of all the guests that were coming in. It was so low of a, a thing to do that rabbis wouldn't even ask their students who were pretty much called to do anything that the rabbis asked of them to do that. And yet here we see Jesus coming and doing this. So having their feet washed was nothing new, but for Jesus to do it, that would have made a a few of them, I think, a little bit uncomfortable there. Now remember, these disciples have just recently been arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. I'm sure they're coming in all jockeying for position. Who's going to sit next to Jesus? Who's going to be around Jesus? Who's who's washing our feet? Where, Where are these people? Nobody's doing it. They're all thinking, I want to be great. If I wash, my, if I wash people's feet, they're going to think I'm not fit enough to be the greatest in the kingdom. So nobody's doing this. Nobody's working on this. Every, nobody's, everybody's looking at one another. Are you going to wash our feet? And some are still arguing over who is going to be the greatest after this dinner even. So Jesus comes and he completely flips upside down the regular social norms of this day. And he demonstrates this way of humility. This way of humility that Paul so accurately describes for us in Philippians 2, verse 5 to 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant which he did all through his ministry, but which really begins to be illustrated here in John chapter 13. And coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So we have a beautiful scene here. Jesus being the servant of all. I'm sure the disciples are all thinking, darn it, I should have been the one that thought of that first. Why are we letting Jesus do this? And everybody's, feel uncomfortable about it. And then, then it says he came to Simon Peter. Now let me stop right there. Peter's the guy that's thinking, I'm going to set this all straight. I'm going to put Jesus in his place. I'm going to stop this right now. But let me stop right there and give you a little visual as to how this whole dinner arrangement might have looked. Because of course, when we think of The Last Supper here, we typically have in our minds the great painting by Leonardo DiCaprio, right? That did that great last... That's... Okay. Um, Da Vinci's Last Supper. Is that a little bit blurry or is that just... It's an old painting, so of course it's going to be blurry, right? So um, that's the image that we oftentimes get, right? Last Supper. Here they all are just sitting on a nice banquet table and Jesus in the middle going, you guys, just be quiet already, right? No, it's not saying that. But, but in actuality, Jesus most likely had his disciples prepare the, this Passover dinner in a room known as the triclinium, containing a table uh, that had three sides on it. In fact, let me do something here for us. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to illustrate this here for you. 
And uh, let's see if I can do this here. Do something a little bit new. So this table now would have had a little bit of a different look to it than what we're probably most uh, familiar with. So we got a table, three sides here, okay? This is what a triclinium would have looked like now. Let's go up here. And so here we are. We got this table sitting there. Now, what would happen is that the host would be sitting right in this place here. So I'll put a little square there. Jesus, we know, is kind of hosting this dinner. So Jesus... Now, what he would do is he would have the, the um, oh, what am I trying to say here? He would have the guest of honor sitting on his left, okay? Now, what's interesting is over on his left here now, the guest of honor. Anybody know who the guest of honor was in this meal? Judas. Judas is sitting here. Because remember, when people were asking, who's going to be the one that's going to betray you? Jesus says, the one that I take this bread, dip it in the sop or the, you know, the soup, the sauce and give it. But what would typically start the dinner, the tradition was that the host would typically dip this bread and give it to the guest of honor. And that would start the dinner. So when Jesus does that, they're not thinking he's, he's revealing the betrayer. They're thinking, oh, dinner's going to start. This is great. So he gives the bread to Judas sitting on his left. Judas is there. But then we also know, because John in chapter 13, we'll get to it next week, reveals who's sitting on his right side. Anybody know who's sitting on the right side? John is, right? Because why do we know that? Because John says that the one that he loved is leaning on his breast. So what they would do when they would sit at a table, no chairs, all right? Leonardo da Vinci had them all sitting down, nice and comfortable, nice chairs. They wouldn't sit this way to table now that they're eating. they would recline at the table they'd be leaning on their left elbow with their feet away from the table remember dirty feet haven't been washed yet you keep those things as far away from the food as you possibly can right so they're leaning on their elbow at the table with their right hand eating and john is sitting on the right side of jesus because he's leaning and leaning on the breast of jesus that's what it says in john chapter 13 uh verse 23 it's right there for us So what would happen now, as the disciples are sitting around the table, it would typically go in consequence or or in order around the table from highest position to lowest position, right? Okay, so we got all these other disciples sitting here. Uh, One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Oh, I'm running on space. Ten, eleven. 12, we did it. Okay, so there's your 12 disciples. Did I get that right? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Good. 12 disciples sitting there. So what's interesting now is it seems that Jesus gets up and starts to wash the feet of his disciples. But then he comes to Peter. It seems that Peter might be sitting way over here in the seat of least honor. Why would Peter be sitting there? Why is Peter way over there? Now, the reason we think this way is because also remember, as Jesus is speaking, Peter's motioning for John. He's getting John's attention. What did he say? What what is Jesus saying? It seems as though Peter's sitting across from John, not quite able to hear what Jesus is saying, but he's getting John's attention to find out what Jesus is saying there. So it seems that Peter's sitting over here in the position of least importance. Why is Peter there? Why is Peter over there? Perhaps Peter was placed there by Jesus, wouldn't that have been great? 
Because I'm sure if Peter's the guy, Peter's sitting, I'm going to sit right over maybe up here. This is the spot that I want right there. The guest of honor, that's my spot. I'm sure Peter was making a beeline for it. Perhaps that seems to be what Peter would have typically done. Maybe Jesus said, Peter, wait, I got a seat for you. Remember what Jesus said there in Luke 14, verse 11? He gives the the parable uh, of the ambitious guest. He says, when you're invited to a meal, to a dinner, don't seek the place of most honor. Because, man, if you jump into that seat and the host says, oh, wait a second, no, 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 that's reserved for somebody else. Your seat is over here. Suddenly you're doing the walk of shame. You're like, oh my goodness, why did I jump into that seat? Now I'm looking like an idiot. I got to walk all the way over here. Jesus made that clear in a parable. Don't seek the positions of greatest honor. So maybe Peter was placed here. Maybe Peter comes into the dinner and says, you know what? I remember what Jesus said. Don't seek the place of honor. In fact, he says there, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Maybe Peter's looking to put this into practice. Ah, you want to be great in the kingdom? Be the servant of all. I'm going to take the low place. That's going to make me maybe look like the greatest of all, actually. A little reverse psychology here for you. You didn't get it, right? That's what Peter's maybe thinking. I don't know. But here it seems evident that he's sitting in this spot here. And Jesus washes the disciples' feet and then... And then, verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? See, Peter's looking to really play up this humility now. Whether it's genuine or not, we don't know. But he's playing up this humility. He's hoping to stand out for the other disciples as the one to put Jesus in his rightful place. Look at verse 7. Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know After this, and Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. I think Jesus pretty much had to say that to his disciples oftentimes, right? What I'm doing, you just don't understand right now. I think we have to hear those words a lot of times too. Because we see things happening that we don't understand and we worry, we freak out. We think, what Jesus are you doing? Why are you letting this happen? And Jesus is saying, take a breath. You just don't understand right now, but you will. That's why it's so important that we walk by faith and we trust the Lord. Things don't oftentimes make sense. I mean, things just in the natural that isn't even a work of Jesus oftentimes don't make sense to me, let alone the things that God does won't often make sense to me. But that's why we walk by faith and we say, Lord, I don't really understand what's happening or I get this right now, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe that you're at work and doing a work and that it's going to be revealed in due time. And it will as we follow him and walk obediently with him. So Peter gets kind of stubborn here. And he says, you shall never wash my feet. Right? Usually not a good thing to deny the things that Jesus wants to do in your life? That's what Peter's doing here. Oh no, Jesus, you will never wash. I think he's trying to act and sound very spiritual, right? But it's not working. It's not that Peter felt that he was too good for this, but that Jesus was too good for this. But then Jesus drops this very big bombshell here. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. 
Now that's pretty loaded, isn't it? This is a serious stuff right now. And you know, Peter heard this loud and clear by how he responds. Look at verse 9. Simon Peter said, Lord, okay, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Do it all, Lord. Well, Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, you are not all clean. So Peter's wanting now Jesus to do it all. Give me a whole bath now, Lord. If it means being linked to Jesus, I want it all. And you know what? I love Peter for this. Uh, in fact, I think of all the disciples, I probably relate to Peter more than any. Because, man, I stumble, I make mistakes, I put my foot in my mouth. But yet, what I love about Peter is he the, he's the guy that's willing to step out more than most. Willing to take those risks. He's a, he's a guy that, I mean, he's passionate for the Lord. And he's now saying, okay, if it means that I have no part with you, then Jesus, I want it all. I want everything you got because I want to be all in, Jesus, with you. He's basically saying, don't just take my feet, but take all of me. Peter's all in for Jesus. Do we share that kind of passion? Are we willing to say, Jesus, take all of me because I want all of you? Is that your commitment to him today? Have you said, Jesus, take all of me because I want all of you. And Jesus said, unless I do this, you have no part with me there in verse 8. And it's true for us today. Are we resisting a work of the Lord? Are we being too focused on our stuff that we fail to allow the Lord to do his thing in us? How important it is for us to stay obediently following Jesus, to know that he's the one that we need to cleanse us and lead us on. You see, here's the great truth. We don't want just a part with Jesus. We want to be wholly set apart for Jesus. We don't want just a part with Jesus. We want to be wholly set apart for Jesus. Like Peter, we want to say, Lord, take all of me. Do the whole deal. So Peter's declaring that here, Lord, take all of me. But Jesus says something wonderful here. And there's a great spiritual truth here for us that we need to be sure we don't miss. Jesus is saying that these disciples are already clean because they've been walking with and following Jesus. And that's, that's looking at this work of salvation. John 15, 3 says, you are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. You see, when we come to Jesus for salvation, guess what? He cleanses us. We're made new, right? And it's a full bath. We're cleansed from past, present, and future sins. The problem is, is that as we go about with our life through this world, we pick up a little bit of dirt, don't we? We know that we're not walking in full holiness. We pick up a little bit of dirt. We get tripped up. Maybe we stumble a little. And that's not a matter of salvation. We haven't lost our salvation over it. But it's a matter of sanctification, of being set apart for Jesus. And if we're allowing ourselves to be defiled by the things of the world, guess what? Then it's going to hinder us in our fellowship with Christ. That's the deal. Again, this isn't about losing salvation, but rather losing our intimacy with Jesus. And so from time to time, and in my case, minute by minute, we need to confess these things to Jesus. 
We didn't bring these things to Jesus. Say, oh man, man, I picked up some dirt, Jesus. But I come and I, I, I bring it to you because I don't want my, I don't want to continue on with dirty feet or dirty hands, right? It tells us in, in, in Psalm 24, I believe it is, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He was clean hands and a pure heart. Psalm 66, 18 tells us this. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So in other words, sin doesn't forfeit our salvation, but it hinders our relationship with the Lord. And so we need to deal with that. We need to have a, a little foot washing every once in a while. And it's done simply by this. Coming to the Lord. Confessing our sin. First John 1 John 1.9, all of you 2.7 people, discipleship people that have done this in the past, you know this verse, First John 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's it. That's all we need to do. Lord, I picked up a little bit of dirt. Oh, I don't need to be resaved, but I need to bring this to you and be cleansed. And when we confess that he's faithful and just to Forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Jesus says, Peter, you don't need a whole bath here, all right? Appreciate your heart, your gusto, but just bring it down a notch right now, okay? Everything's fine. You just need a little bit of a, a foot bath right now. In fact, you need to take a little bit extra long on your feet here. But So he gives him a little foot bath here. Think about that for you today. You've been cleansed with the blood of the Lamb. Jesus died to forgive you of your sin. There's nothing you can do that can remove that work of salvation in your life. If you're here today in your faith for salvation and forgiveness of sin is in Christ, then you're a new creation. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Praise the Lord for that. We're a new creation. We don't need to be made a new creation every time we sin. We don't need resaving. We just need cleansing from time to time. Now, we know that this lesson that Jesus was giving really kind of, I think, settled into the heart of Peter. Because years later, decades later, when Peter wrote to Christians about humility, he wrote this in 1 Peter 5, 5. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What did Peter say? Be clothed with humility. What did Jesus do? He took off his outer garments and he girded himself with a towel. Took that role of a servant. Clothed himself in humility. And Peter got this loud and clear. And he's exhorting now the church to do the same. Now before we move on, we see once more that Jesus had full knowledge of what was going on at all times. He knew that Jesus or Judas was going to betray him. He knew that Judas wasn't one of those who were cleansed because Judas didn't allow himself to receive Jesus as his Lord. That's why Jesus said there, you are not all clean. It's not saying that Peter, you're not all clean. He's saying the group here is not all clean because there's one that wasn't in Christ. Never received that work of the Lord initially, that, that cleansing of sin. So we've seen this example of humility, this work of holiness, but let's look at the result now. The result is happiness. 
Look at what we read in verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So Jesus wants his disciples to really catch the significance of this here. You see, the leaders of Jerusalem were well known for serving themselves. Looking out for others was not something typically seen in those with prominent positions. In fact, people wanted those prominent positions because it put them in a place over other people where they could be served and remove themselves far from serving. So this was something that was very common among even religious leaders. This was a new thing for people to really see a man of Jesus' stature taking this role of a servant, putting a towel around him and washing feet. This was amazing. And he wants his disciples to see that the way of Jesus was going to be drastically different than the way of the world. Since he was their rabbi, their their teacher, their, their master, he could have easily sat back and asked these guys to serve him. And they would have. Been like, yeah, that's what we should do. But Jesus demonstrated that he came to serve. And if he would do that for them, then how should they treat others? See, since Jesus came and laid his life down for us, shouldn't we be willing now to lay our lives down for others? And he tells us as much. Since I've washed your feet, he says, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He gave that example for us to follow. And he says in verse 16, most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. Or, as that word means blessed, happy. Happy are you if you do them. Now, here's the thing. I think we can kind of glorify serving, right? That becomes a word we use in church circles to actually at times elevate ourselves, maybe even pump ourselves up, right? Like, you know, I've just been serving in Sunday school for the last three Sundays. Man, am I exhausted, but boy, it's just been, just been my role, you know, serving in Sunday school, just all for the kingdom, right? We kind of glorify this idea of serving. We make it sound like, ah, look at me. I'm just serving. And we say that because we think others are going to be like, oh man, you are so awesome. You're so wonderful. That's great. And we we sort of hope that people are going to kind of, you know, maybe praise us or give us the accolades we think we deserve for putting up with children over three Sundays that look like they've never been around adults before, right? You know, it's kind of like, whew, it's tough work. So we kind of glorify serving, even in announcements, right? Cole's like, hey, we have an opportunity for people to serve in Sunday school. Children's ministry. I love that, right? Oh, there's an opportunity for it. It's like, oh, there is an opportunity. Great. Nobody's jumping up for that, right? But we, we try to make it sound like it's a really awesome thing. And it is. It really is. Because why? Well, we're finding out why here. But we can kind of glorify serving. We, we can use that to sometimes even promote ourselves, actually. But here's the thing. How do you handle being treated like a servant think about that 
when others treat you like a servant, do you kind of get your back up against the wall? Why are they talking to me like that? Why are they treating me like that? Don't, I don't deserve that. You think you're better than me? Wait, and we start to kind of get ourselves worked up a little bit over that sometimes. Because if you're serving, it's like, ah, just serving. I'm just a servant, right? Jesus served and he called us to serve. But how do you handle that when you're being treated like a servant? Jesus was treated that way. Did he fight against it? Did he balk at it? No, he, he went through it. And, and Jesus gives us a lesson here. We're not greater than our master. And if Jesus did this, then so should we. We take the position of the lowest slave and we wash feet. We do whatever it takes to lift up others and bless them. And you'll know how you're doing as a servant when people begin to treat you as a servant. Do you take it? Are you responding okay to it? Are you saying, yeah, it's okay because that's what I am. That's what I've been called to do. But catch this. Jesus says, blessed are you if you do them. We're called to bless others, but Jesus says, blessed are you if you do them. And it's not blessed are you if you hear it or blessed are you if you take notes about it. No, blessed are you if you do it. Put it into practice. Start living like a servant. And again, that's what's going to breed happiness in your life. By looking to others' needs before your own. Don't buy into the world's logic that says, if you want to be happy, then you need to stand up for yourself. You need to look out for numero uno. You need to take care of yourself. That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus says, you want to experience happiness? Die to self. Live for others. Walk in humility. Consider others better than yourself. Come alongside them and be willing to get dirty. Wash some feet. Help landscape the pastor's yard. Whatever it takes to just... Maybe not that. I, I don't... That just came to my mind. I don't know. But... Come alongside and, and serve. See, when you're feeling down and bummed out, the reason why is oftentimes because we get very self-centered. We're looking at all of our stuff, problems, stresses, and, and it gets us down. And sometimes we're just ready to throw in the towel. But here's what Jesus says. Ah, no, don't throw in the towel. Put on a towel and look to others. Get your mind, your focus off of yourself and on others and start to serve. Because when you start to look to others, that's going to cause you to be blessed, to be happy. It's going to get your focus off of you and on how you can minister to and bless others. So Jesus says, If I then your Lord and teacher, verse 14, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to bring basins of water up and we're going to begin to... What? No, we're not going to do that. You're just like, you're freaking out right now. You're like going, oh my goodness. If I knew that, I would have like done my nails. That's, would have worn different socks. 
Some churches make it a practice. But here's the thing. I don't think Jesus is saying literally wash other people's feet because what we know to be a practice that the church does and follows is that if it's taught by Jesus, we see it happening in the book of Acts and the epistle writers are instructing about it in the church. But we don't see this happening in the book of Acts. We don't see it written about in the epistles. Jesus is saying simply this, be a servant. Do what it takes. In our day, Washing feet, I mean, that's the least of our problems. Maybe it would be, you know, wash one another's armpits. That would be a little bit better. That would be more fitting for today. But we're not, don't worry, we're not going to go there. But what can we do to come alongside and serve one another? That's what Jesus is saying. And blessed are you if you do them. So here's what we're going to do. Simple. We're going to just get into groups of three or four. And let's just... Take some time to pray for one another. Let's minister to each other in that way. So, and and here's the thing. If you can find somebody that you don't know, the bonus points for you, okay? Star, extra stars upon your name for that. Find somebody you don't know, maybe, and and just meet them and and just pray for one another. And uh, that's what we're going to do to close our service here today because this is a great way that we can come alongside and just serve and bless one another. But let it not end there. Let's be a church that is seeking how we can lift up and encourage and come alongside one another as Jesus gave that example for us to do, to to serve each other, to minister to each other. Blessed are you if you do them. So right now, just go ahead, move about if you need to. If you want to go find a, a row of seats that's unoccupied, find two or three people, get a group of three or four of you and just start to pray for one another, worship team. We'll begin to lead us in worship in a few minutes here.